We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. Remember, this are, this, these are Peter's final words that he's given to people, to all Christians now. And he's given us much hope and encouragement in chapter 1. He's given us much warning about false teachers in chapter 2. And then we come to chapter 3, and he starts another subject that really ties in with the idea of false teachers. And today what we're looking at is the coming of the Lord. And he, he calls it the day of the Lord. And we'll, we'll go in actually in the future weeks what all that means and covers, because he doesn't mention it in the section we're looking at, but he's referring to it, really, the day of the Lord. And he's, he talks, though, about the coming of the Lord. And as it pertains to the coming of the Lord, he says there's going to be some issues. There's going to be issues with people, specifically, people that don't believe. And those people are going to scoff. They're going to mock. So what we're dealing with today is really those that scoff at his coming. Those that scoff at his coming are what, is what uh, the title of the message is today. And we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let me ask you this question. Has anyone ever scoffed at you? We don't use the word scoff as much. We, we more like the word mock, you know, mock at someone, make fun of. Or we think of scoff as just that utterance that someone's, someone says under their breath when they don't believe you, right? I don't quite believe you. Or people will mock too. Um, there's plenty of mocking going on. Would you not agree today? No matter what it is, you choose your side and then you mock the other side. Well, that has been throughout history, people scoffing or mocking or even making light of. There's a few quotes I have of people mocking throughout history. Here's one. Anybody who thinks talk is cheap should get some legal advice. <laughs> and I don't know who they're mocking at that. I think actually we all do. This one is a very unwise saying, even though it has the word wise in it. I'm assuming this is from a single man, because he said, ask a woman's advice, and whatever she advises, do the very reverse, and you're sure to be wise. <laughs> I know from personal experience that is not true. I listen to my wife, and I'm thankful for my wife. Or this, uh, I was talking, I think, with Gary a couple weeks ago, that horses are really expensive right now, apparently in the valley here, supply and demand, but... Here's one on that, that idea. Anybody who finds it easy to make money on the horses is probably in the dog food business. So I know right now supply and demand, people are actually wanting to ride them, not eat them. Or what, this may be on a more serious note. One of the greatest problems of our time is that many are schooled, but few are educated. And there's probably some truth in some of these mocks of people. But then it even turns to people that mock God. And this has been done throughout history. It's nothing new, as we'll see in our passage. But this is from Thomas Paine. He's well known, but very much uh, anti-God, where he says, one, one good schoolmaster is of more use than a hundred priests. And of course, he, he was in the time of the Catholic Church. But if you would say even pastors, we would uh, disagree greatly with that statement, realizing that schools... And pastors uh, often are not on the same page as far as the ideology or worldview that is being presented. He also said of the Bible specifically, it is not a God, just and good, but a devil under the name of God that the Bible describes. And what is he saying? He's saying, I don't believe the Bible. 
I don't believe God is just and good, but I will believe in the devil and that it's his work that is happening here. And so when it comes to our passage today, we're going to see that, that people scoff, and they scoff or mock specifically Christ, that he's coming again. And so Peter is actually helping and walking us through what to do and what to expect and how to even respond in the midst of all of that. So if you would, read with me out loud together, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, and both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So scoffing at his coming. Scoffing. And Peter starts this section with something very important. He starts it with saying you need to remind Remind yourself simply of God's truth. In other words, in the midst of all these people that he's about to set up, that scoff, that mock, says let's start with the basics and start with going back to the beginning and start with going back to the foundation. And he says to remind yourself of God's truth. In verse 1, he answers this question, how to guard myself? Notice in verse 1, he says, this second epistle Beloved, I now write unto you. So second epistle, what was the first one? Well, thankfully, we have it in our Bible. It's First Peter. So he had already written one lengthier letter to them, admonishing and encouraging them. And he's saying, again, now I'm writing unto you a second time. Why would you have to write twice? Well, sometimes maybe there's another issue that comes up. But sometimes it's just to reiterate your care and concern or even your love. Because notice he says, beloved. I remember when my wife and I, we were engaged for a year, and we were apart. She reminds me for 100 days during that engagement. And during those 100 days, what did we do? Well, I was working at camp, didn't have much cell phone reception, maybe on the very edge of the property. But at camp, your life is camp 24-7. You're with campers and all that. So what little time you get, what do you do? You write letters to each other. And we wrote a lot of letters back and forth that we now have in boxes in our, in our closet with all our keepsakes. Those are fun letters. And what did those letters say? Well, it said what was going on, right? But a lot of it was just reiterating our love for one another. And during those 100 days, how do you think she would have felt if I wrote her one letter and she wrote me 100? Well, I said, well, I already told you, right? I already told you I loved you in that very first letter. 
So, you know, just read that one again. No, the idea is I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to keep on writing letters because it's new and it's fresh and I want to remind her. And I and I did that even this morning. I didn't write her a letter, but I told her that I loved her. She still though writes little notes for me, especially when I go on trips and I love it. She'll leave it in my pocket or some little place so that when I'm, you know, putting on my clothes for the day or changing clothes for an afternoon activity, I'll reach in and there's a little note. And what is that note? It's a reminder of her love for me. And here, Peter is saying, I'm writing you again, beloved, because I love you and I care about you and I want you to remember. I want you to remember something very important. Not just my love for you as an apostle, but really God's love and truth for you that you should focus on. So he says, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. It's one of deep concern. And what is this purpose? In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. What does it mean to stir up, to whip up? That's what you do with pancake batter, right? You stir it up. You get it all in a frenzy. Well, the idea here is, is awake, arise. I'll awake to pancakes. I'll arise to pancakes, right? Get, get up, wake up, and, and have your mind engaged. And so I want, I want your mind to be engaged and awake about what I'm telling you. And I want it to be awake, your pure minds. Pure minds. What does it mean to have a pure mind? Well, often when we use that word pure mind, especially in that thing, we, we think of moral purity in our, in our thoughts, but he's going much broader and beyond even that here. When he says pure minds, he's saying your mind is free from wrong considerations. That your mind's not going to be contaminated with dirty fingerprints and smudges of wrong thinking. If you've worked on greasy, oily engines, you know how your hands get, right? You get covered in oil. And you go inside, and what can you not do? Well, in my case, if I'm sweaty and oily, I cannot hug my wife, okay? Even if I want to. She doesn't want a gross, sweaty, oily hug. She doesn't want to be contaminated with all of those things. How do our minds, though, get contaminated? Do you have any wrong considerations in your mind? What do we call those? Sometimes we just call them worries, right? In other words, have you worried this past week? No, I didn't worry, Pastor Phil. I was just solving a problem, right? I was just thinking through an issue. I was just figuring it out. So what's the difference between worry <laughs> and having a pure mind? Well, he, 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 he goes on to say that it's, it's mindful of the words. In other words, you, you have in mind God and his truth in the midst of all these problems. But right now he's saying you have to guard yourself. You need to awaken, arise, stir up, remember to have a mind free from all the distractions that would pull you away the distractions that would take your mind off of the truth, the distractions that would try to dilute the pure thinking of the Word of God. Casey mentioned this morning in Sunday school that he tries to avoid the news <laughs> at times. And I know you can't always completely avoid it, but why is that? Well, because we, we see that even in the news and all the media that there is an impurity there, right? that it's trying to affect our minds and change our thinking. 
and actually get us to think a certain way. And so this idea of pure mind, you could also, if you want, literally translate it as brainwashed, right? But it's in a good way. (laughs) It's not brainwashed in the way we use that term. But if you think about it, it's your mind is clean, it's pure, it's washed with the truth of God's word. So he's saying that's how you guard yourself in reminding yourself of God's truth. But what do you remind yourself of? Well, that's what he goes on to say in verse 2, where he says, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. What are you supposed to remind yourself of? Mindful, here is, is the idea of calling to mind. Calling to mind. Do you ever forget anything? You know that I never forget anything. No, I'm kidding. I forget things all the time. So what, what do you have to do to remember things? Well, here's a great, a great system. I figured it out. You take a sticky note, you write that thing down, and then you forget where you put the sticky note, okay? That's the best systems, right? No, there's no perfect system. It's, it's very easy to forget things, even very simple things in life. And so to remind, to be mindful is, is an active, it's a proactive call to remembrance, to call to mind. So how do you do that? There has to be practical ways where maybe there's, there's a set time, even daily or weekly or monthly, I know people that do that, that, that you say, I'm going to stop, I'm going to try <laughs> to clear my mind of, of these, these other things that seem to be bar- bombarding me and focus on God and his word. And that's appropriate and that's right. And that's what Peter is calling us to, to be mindful, to, to take time to proactively, to purposefully point ourselves to what? Notice what he says there, of the words. Throughout these seven verses, we're going to see this idea of words or word come up over and over, specifically God's word. Be mindful specifically of the very words, certain sayings, specific things that are written down. Isn't it, isn't it beautiful? I love this. We have a Bible. We have a book where the words are written down, and it's in our own language, and we got it all here, and we can actually read it. I don't know about you, that, that for God to reveal himself and to preserve his word and to give it to us like that, to me that's amazing, that we have those words. So he's saying these words, because he goes on to, to clarify which words, those that were spoken before by the holy prophets, what would that be? The Old Testament. To sum it up, it's the Old Testament. It's what was spoken before by the holy prophets. Specifically, though, in this context, in the Old Testament, all the foretellings of Christ. And remember, over and over and over again, we, we looked a few Tuesday nights ago at just, or actually it was communion, at the prophetic foretellings of the Messiah in just the book of Psalms. And if you look at them, at the book of Psalms, there's, there's like 25 plus uh, prophecies in the book of Psalm alone that foretell Christ and how he would live and what he would do. And that's just one book of the Bible. And over and over and over, we see that in the Old Testament. It's pointing forward. Christ will do this. Christ will come and save his people. Christ will be crucified on a tree. Christ will be born of a virgin. All of these things that, that have come true. And he's saying, remember 
all that the Old Testament prophets have foretold of Christ. But he also is saying not just the words of the Old Testament, but also and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. The commandment. What is the commandment? Well, you could take commandment as the whole of Christian doctrine. All that is, that is Christian, the teaching of that. But in this context, I believe it's specifically talking about the commandment to look for Christ's coming. Because that's the context of this passage. And how often is that talked about? Well, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament. And in those 260 chapters, there's 300 references to Christ's second coming. And that's the context that we're looking here. He's saying over and over and over again, it's repeated often to remind ourselves that, yes, Jesus is coming again. I just want to look at one of those, and that's a very familiar passage in John 14, 3. It's Christ's words himself. When we ask this question, is Jesus coming again? Because a lot of people think he isn't. But what did Christ himself say? Well, in John 14, 3, this is a long and beautiful passage, but We'll start in verse 1 of John 14 where it says, Christ is speaking to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Is your heart ever troubled? Well, don't let it be troubled. Well, why not? Well, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a precious promise. I'm leaving, but I'm coming again. And here's the sweet part, so you can be with me. And so when it comes to these truths of reminding ourselves, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, that Christ is coming again, it seem, it, we see over and over and over that yes, Christ has promised, and Christ's promises have come true, so we can trust the future ones. And he says the commandment of the apostles. Who are the apostles? The apostles are the ones that are sent of God. Those are the ones that, that saw the Lord, that were with the Lord that then wrote the scripture for us as well. And it's those specific ones. And notice it's the apostles of the Lord and Savior looking directly at Jesus, who is the Lord over all and the Savior to, to all, who freely offers salvation to all. And so it's those apostles, even though there are many false apostles, are there not? It's those apostles, specifically the ones that have written words down in our New Testament, that those are the words we're supposed to look at. So Peter's saying in these first two verses, remind yourself of God's truth. Remind yourself of God's truth over and over and over again. Look at the Old Testament, look at the New Testament. Look at the promises God has fulfilled, look at the promises that God will fulfill. Because it is certain and it is true. And I want your mind to be awakened to that. Because it can so easily become contaminated with the busyness of right now, right? Or all the things that are happening right now. Do you have any things going on in your life right now? I'm not saying ignore them. That would be irresponsible. But I'm saying don't forget that Christ is coming again to make all things right. And your problem that you're dealing with right now really is, is really pales in comparison 
to all of eternity. Like I'm building a shed in my backyard, or at least attempting to. And that shed, when I, Lord willing, get it finished eventually, will be a shed that, that works well and, and lasts for a while. But let me tell you something, that shed is not going to last forever. Even though we put all that hard work into it, it's, it's going to burn down or rot and fall over or decay, or the next owners are going to come along and say that's a horrible shed and post it for free on Craigslist. You know, There's all sorts of things that could happen. And so even though you might be investing in a very temporal thing, you have to look up and remember, yeah, I want to use this temporal thing for eternal value, eternal good. I have to, I have to store my stuff so I can take care of my family, and my family uh, you know, are, are eternal things, or to take care of my house, which I, I share with my church family. And so those are all a good and appropriate things. But don't forget that Christ is coming again. So he says, remind yourself of God's truth. And then secondly, he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to say, remember that man will mock. In other words, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you that even though God's truth is there, it's written clearly on the page, anyone can go and read it, and even though it is true, it doesn't negate the fact that there still are many, many people that will look at it and scoff, say no. That's not true. That's not going to happen. So remember, it shouldn't come as a surprise that people are mocking the very word of God. Well, who are these people? Look at verse 3. It tells us, knowing this first. He starts with knowing this first. I want you to remember to know, to experience this foremost. In other words, in his list of points, this would be his first point. If, if you're going to be discouraged because of this, just remember that this has really always happened. And that this is always going to happen. Mockers are going to mock. Scoffers are going to scoff. That's what they do. So remember this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Or there will be. Well, what are the last days? Are we living in the last days? Absolutely. Yeah, we are in the last days. The last days, even Peter and Paul would say they were living in because it's the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So the last days is really since Christ left, set up the church, and then now we are living in the last days. Now, is there some more specificity given at times where, you know, there's signs of things to come? Yes, we know, but we know that Christ's return, his, his, his coming in the rapture can be at any moment, it's imminent. In other words, does anything else really need to be fulfilled? No, if you look even at Matthew 24, have those things happened? Yeah, over and over. In other words, some people have said even in the past that Christ has already had his second coming or the rapture has already happened. Remember, Paul had a right to the Thessalonians to, to remind him, no, that actually hadn't. So they were already dealing with that issue way back then. But he's saying we are in the last days now, the days where people are going to mock, people are going to scorn and he says, in these last days, the time between Christ's first and second coming, there shall be scoffers. And really, literally, you could translate it as scoffing scoffers or mocking mockers. It reiterates itself. In other words, this is what these people do. Throughout the Bible, we get illustrations and examples of what to do with scoffers. Turn to Psalm 1. It's a very familiar but encouraging psalm. Psalm. 
I know some of you, when people mock, you get all fired up, and you can fight fire with fire, right? Some of you are pretty good at it, too. And that doesn't mean we can't speak the truth in love, but the focus, notice, on those that are mocking, what does the psalmist say? Because even in the Old Testament, they were dealing with scoffers and mockers. It's nothing new. Verse 1 of Psalm 1, blessed or happy, blessed by the Lord, is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He gives three actions and three groups of people that are really tied up together in this idea of mockers or scornful or people who don't like God. It's, it's not walking in their way. It's not standing or sitting. And what does that mean? That, you, that you're not going the same path with them, that you're not living in the same place with them, that you're not with them in the thick and thin. Because what are they doing? Well, they're ungodly, they're sinners, and they're scorners. And this idea of scorners is that same idea of scorner or mocker here. And it, it's really the, the, the base word of that idea of scorner has the idea of, of speaking as an ambassador. It's almost like speaking another person's word. It's often used that way. But what would a scorner be doing? Well, really, they're mocking another person's word or, or speaking out of line. Not like a good ambassador. It's, it's actually a very bad ambassador. So what do we do in said verse 2? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. The words of the Old, Prof, Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. So don't let your mind be contaminated. Instead, meditate day and night. And what's the result? And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So when people mock, they make fun of the Bible, they say, oh, God's not coming again. Here's the comfort. Focus on God's word. Scorners are going to scorn. But God knows your way specifically. And if you're following him in a righteous way, you will be blessed. That doesn't mean life will be simple or easy, but it will be fruitful. And God is on your side. Back in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, we saw, Knowing this verse, foremost, that there shall come in the last day scoffing scoffers, and who are these people? How are they defined? How do you know them? They're walking after their own lusts. Walking. Our Sunday school series is walking with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, in a sense, it's step with step, side by side. You're going along with God's path, his plan, his way. And what are the scoffing scoffers doing? They're walking, they're going along after their own way, their own lusts. That idea of lust is really just evil desires, desires that are contrary to what God says is right. And so that's what they're living in. That's what they're meditating in. That's what they're dwelling in. So is it really any surprise that they're scoffing God's way? And Peter says, no, it shouldn't really be any surprise because that's what they're doing. They're, they're ordering their steps 
after their own internal desires, no thought of God. So who are they? They're scoffing scoffers. What do they say? So this is under the idea of remember that they will mock. Well, verse 4 tells us, and they say and saying, where is the promise of his coming? What are they saying? Christ promised to come again? Where is his promise? He hasn't fulfilled that. He hasn't come again. What are you talking about? Where is that? There's no way he's going to do that. In other words, is Christ really coming again? And what are they doing? When scoffers say, is Christ really coming again, what are they, what are they attacking in God's character? They're, they're attacking God's trustworthiness, right? In other words, can God really, is he really going to keep his promises? Notice that they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, they, they know about the teaching that Christ is supposed to come again. So they're not ob- oblivious to the fact that the, the scriptures have revealed that Jesus is coming again. But what do they do with that knowledge? They throw it to the side and say, well, it hasn't happened yet, so it's probably not ever going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then what they're saying by that is Christ doesn't keep his promises. Well, what promise did Christ give? Well, there's many we could look at, but let's look at Matthew 24 briefly. Matthew chapter 24 talks much of the day of the Lord, his, his second coming, signs of the end, coming of the Son of Man. We're just going to look Matthew 24, verse 38 and 39 at the end. Matthew 24, start in verse 36, 24, 36 of Matthew. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In other words, only God knows when Christ is coming. But as in the days of Noah, or Noah, were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What were the days of Noah like? Every thought, every imagination, every desire, every action was evil continually. Does it seem like the world's like that some days? (laughs) Yeah, it does some days. 38, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking Marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, what were they doing? They were just going about life. They were living their own life, their own way, saying, nope, there's no judgment coming. Nothing's happening. The world just keep, is going to keep on going, and I don't have to worry about anything. But what happened? Verse 39, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it's going to catch them off guard and unexpected because they're ignoring it. So they're saying, where's the promise? Back in verse 4 of 2 Peter 3, they're saying, where's the promise of his coming? Is Christ really coming again? And this is their reasoning. This is their argument for why they say he can't come again. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So what are they saying? Since the fathers fell asleep, they're talking about the Old Testament patriarchs there, the fathers, And fell asleep is just a euphemism for dead. So they died in the past, but I love how they use asleep because we even use that as a euphemism for death. And why do we say that? Because we know that as a believer, physical death is not the final answer, right? To be absent uh, from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then one day Christ will return. The trump of God shall sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. 
In other words, the body's coming and we'll get a new body. In a sense, the body wakes back up and gets a big reset button, a big refresh, a new body. And so even though they're saying asleep, they don't really believe that, no, Christ isn't going to come again or resurrect people or anything like that. They're saying all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And this is, the, this is really the idea of, of deism, the idea that, yeah, okay, there is creation. God, God set up the world and he set things in order, but then he just kind of shoved it out the door and, and let, let the world go, and things are just ticking along. And even the natural man would look at it the same way, right? What does the natural man say? Well, there, there's some sort of big bang and everything just kind of was created out of nothing or something. We're not quite sure. But then it, it came and it, we found order and, and coherence and things slowly got better for some reason until here we are today and now, the, you know, the clock it just keeps on ticking on. Which to me, I don't totally get the natural mindset because if you have that mindset, what, what is the, the big cause? We've got to save the planet. We've got to save the here and now. You've got to be remembered, right? Yet in all of those things, everything is going to go away. Everything's going to end at some point. The earth is eventually going to end. Even the natural man will tell you that. The sun's not going to last forever. It will eventually burn out, right? And it will be no more. Well, what if we make it to another planet? Well, the universe is eventually going to end, right? The stars don't last forever in that sense. So even the natural man that's saying, I want to be remembered and I want to, you know, keep everything nice and safe and, and, and good and just ticking along has to realize that all of that is futile unless there's eternity in view. In other words, God has put within our hearts eternity. We realize that this can't be it. There has to be something that lasts forever. And yet, they're just saying, nope, all things are continuing. They just keep ticking along as they were from the beginning of creation. Natural above all else, no room for supernatural or for God to do anything ever again. Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 says we do have much hope and much to be confident of. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the truth that we are to focus on, to have much hope in, even though the scoffers are saying, ah, nope, the world's just going to keep on going just like it always has. So how do we deal with those scoffing at his coming? Remind yourself of God's truth. Remember that man will mock. 
And then thirdly, recognize God's word over man's ignorance. In other words, there's a balance or a scale in the balance, in other words, and you're saying, no, I'm going to give more weight to one than the other. And that's what Peter goes on to say. Look at verse 5 of 2 Peter 3. He says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. What is he saying here? He's saying there's facts that are clearly on display. Christ has clearly said, I'm coming again. That's a fact. It's written down. We have it. Or they could also be even the creation, that there is no God. In other words, a total natural worldview. But the facts don't point to that. Creation demands a creator. I won't look at my shed once I've finished building it and say, hmm, I wonder how that got there. Just plop there, right? What do you need to build a shed? You need to win the lottery right now so you can afford the lumber, right? <laughs> no. Thankfully, all my stuff is from a, a deck I took down. I have some splinters here to prove it. And uh, with that shed, I don't look at it and say, oh, wow, that's a nice shed. I wonder how they got there. I, I say, no, there had to be a creator. And creation screams of that and says, yes, there is a creator. And yet, what do people do? They willingly choose to be ignorant. In other words, they are making a conscious decision to be blind, to ignore the facts. They deliberately forget. Have you ever had that with a child? <laughs> what do you get? I asked you to do this. Oh, I forgot. Maybe you've said that as a child too, or to your boss, hopefully not. And what are they saying? Wait a minute, did you really forget? <laughs> or did you choose to forget? And then you have that whole conversation with your child of how not to forget, or how can I help you not forget, right? But yet, they are willingly ignorant. And what are they ignorant of? Well, it says that by the word of God, they're ignorant of the word of God and what it says about creation. They're ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And what is he saying? He's saying the word of God, that the heavens, and he's talking about creation specifically here. How did God create? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say how he created. He created out of nothing. He didn't need anything. And he created simply by speaking. All he had to do was say it. And God said, let there be and there was. And it's really as simple and as powerful as that. And so they, say, they ignore the word of God that the heavens were of old. The heavens, that's just the sky, the stars, everything there were of old. Now, of course, the natural man will say that it's very old. What Peter is saying here is not that the earth is billions of years old when he says of old. Um, we would even say that, you know, hundreds of years is old, right? If someone's a, hundred year, a couple hundred years old, they're old. 200 at least, really old, right? And then you get to thousands of years. Thousands of years is a long time. So even though the earth is only several thousand years old, he still can say that it's old because in estimation to a human, it's not that long ago. So that the word of God, the heavens were of old. They ignore the creation and they ignore all the creation of count. And he goes on to say in verse five, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And what he's saying is that, remember how God created? He created a, a watery earth and then formed the dry land from that. So the land was gathered together into one place. 
And then he says, in the water, it's really the idea of between the water, that there's water above and water below. We even see that in the Noah flood account that there's water in the deep that came up from out of the earth to flood the earth. So he's saying the land was, was taken and put in a place where it could be dry and composed there. And what do people do? They ignore the simple account given in Genesis and say, no, it can't be that. God couldn't have done it that way. God couldn't have created in six days. You know, they will ignore all of those things and say, no, it's, that's not the way it happened. And even with a clear biblical account that gives the word of God as the authority, what do people do? They ignore it. So they ignore the creation, but verse 6 tells us that they also willfully ignore a worldwide flood. And notice how in the first, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are what's discounted and thrown out and saying, no, that can't be. And uh, our VBS curriculum is actually from a place that many of you are familiar with, Answers in Genesis, that focuses a lot on those first 11 chapters to show that, yes, you can take this as it's given and as the rest of Scripture takes it, an actual account of how things came to be. Notice verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. And what is he talking about? The world that then was is the sinful people in Noah's time and pre-flood that then were overflowed with water. In other words, even Peter would say everything overflowed. He, he agrees and believes in a worldwide flood. That it was flooded and destroyed. So what do, what do men do in their ignorance? They deny creation they deny the worldwide flood, and Peter even here is saying that very clearly. And what is he using it or comparing it to? He's saying just as sure as God's word created and just as sure as God's word made a flood come, verse 7 is just as sure. Look at it, that there's a future judgment coming as well. But the heavens and earth, which are now, that is today's world, by the same word are kept in store. In other words, God has said that there is coming judgment and it's kept in store. What does it mean to keep something in store? It's to put it on layaway. We even use that term, right? To keep it in store is you don't have the, the object yet, but it's sitting behind a counter somewhere and it's reserved for you specifically. So when you finally get enough money or whatever, you can go to the store and it's yours. And that's what God's judgment, his word about his judgment is like. It's sitting on layaway right now, but it's going to come to the forefront someday. And what is that, that forefront? He said it's reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition. God's judgment is coming, and the ultimate state will be perdition for the lost. That is a lost state of ruin. This is the final judgment. There's fire coming. Now remember, God, after the flood, he gave us a beautiful sign. What was that? That was the rainbow. A bow in the sky that he would never again judge the earth with a global flood. But notice, that doesn't prohibit God from judging the entire earth with global fire as well. And Peter will go on to say, uh, even in previous places too, how that the world will be destroyed someday with fire. So if you're concerned about global warming... I have bad news for you. It's going to happen. Okay? Now, it's, it's going to happen whether you believe it or not. And, it, and it's going to happen, in other words, 
I'm not saying we should just discard and not take care of our earth or be good stewards of what God's giving. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, and even the natural unbelieving man has to realize that the world eventually is going to burn up, okay? Because the sun is, is going to explode, in my understanding, when it runs out of fuel and it will take everything with it. So global warming is a real fact. However, it's going to be on God's timetable. And God's going to do it. And just think about where are we sitting right now? I, I believe there's only like 10 to 20 miles of crust beneath our feet, and then it's just, what, a hot molten iron core and all that. So there's a lot of fire there, and then we got all these stars everywhere. I think God has a little bit of resources on hand to accomplish his work of fire, okay? Of course, he could just say. So between the Earth's core, the stars, you even think of atomic energy, that there is, there is fire reserved against the day of judgment, and notice, it's specifically directed to ungodly men. It's those that are godless and without fear of God. So here's my appeal. If you're a believer and you know God's word, believe the truth. Remind yourself of God's truth. Remember that men are going to mock. It shouldn't come as any surprise. And then uphold or recognize God's word above man's willful ignorance. So what you have to do in your own mind is saying, no, God's word is true no matter what man says. And maybe some of you are here and you might disagree with some of the things I've said, and that's fine if you disagree with me, but what I want to caution you against is disagreeing with God. Because when you disagree with God, it's, it's not a fight that you can win. Does that make sense? So I would graciously appeal to you by the authority of God's word that what he says is true. And if you submit to that and humble yourselves, what does God promise to do? He promised to exalt those that humble themselves. And if, you've been, if you are saved by the blood of Jesus, that took some humbling, right? You had to admit who you were and who, were, who God was. And would you not say that God has exalted you even in this life in some ways because of even your salvation, just that basic thing? And that's not even talking about all of eternity and what he will accomplish there. So look to Christ. There's, there are those that scoff at his coming, but be reminded of the truth of God's certain and true word.